you have a condition, you it is affecting your function, you really cannot work, really, but you're going to work anyway. So you're not really, uh, you know, logging it as being off sick uh, when, when you probably, when you should. You know, that's that's kind of it. So it's, it's, it's general, not just for mental health, that, that would apply across the board. Hello, and welcome to the Helping Organizations Thrive podcast. This is your host, Julian Roberts. This podcast is to provide leaders with insights, discussions, and robust strategies to help their companies thrive. We'll be interviewing business leaders, owners, experts, and thought leaders in the field of business resilience. Do enjoy the episode. Welcome to Helping Organizations Thrive. Uh, Today, I have on the show Andre uh, Fonseca. Uh, good morning or good afternoon to you. It is almost afternoon now, uh, Andre. Hi, good morning. Thank you. Or good afternoon. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Thanks for having me you. on the podcast. Yeah, no, be good. To, looking forward to this conversation. So you're, you're a physician, you're a psychiatrist. Yes. And you're also a senior executive of some privately held companies in the mental health space. Um, mm-hmm. You're currently the CEO of Thrive, uh, a company dedicated to creating evidence-based digital tools to detect, prevent, and treat mental health conditions. Uh, but you're also the CEO of Pathfinder Group, uh, where you provide residential uh, mental health services in North London. Um, you're an honorary lecturer of the Division of Psychiatry in University College London and the Department of Psychology at the University of Roehampton. So lots of experience, lots of, um, um, I guess, uh, educational experience as well in terms of, sort of what you've done there. Um, uh, but you're also very pragmatic in what you're doing with your company. And today mm. we're going to be exploring, you know, what is uh, presenteeism and uh, in the workplace and how we deal with that and mm. um, what are the implications for uh, organisations in terms of the cost, but also the, not just the financial cost, but the sort of cost to employees as well. Uh, but before we get there, Andrea, I'd just like to ask, um, with that array of introduction, what, what do you love about what you do? Well, I mean, uh, I suppose I could be—I could just be a, a, a doctor, a physician, and that is actually something that I've always found very satisfying. Is perhaps I, I still have a small clinical load, so I still see patients directly, uh, and and perhaps that's the bit that is, you know, most enjoyable to me still. Um, however, you know, very early on in my career, I find myself always wanting to to try and improve the service as a, as a whole, not just for the patient that is in front of me, but for you know all the patients. So, I usually had a, um, a you know this itch, this this urge to try and fix something that I felt was was broken. Um, one of the first things that I that I did when I became a consultant uh, was that. Uh, the GPs were referring to me. I, I was I'm, I'm dual qualified. I'm adult psychiatrist, but I'm also an old age psychiatrist, and I've always been interested in that transition as well. Um, so a lot of the GPs were referring to me um, people with uh, with dementia, but they were very young, and I wanted to create a, a service that focused on people with dementia that started very young, and um, <laughs> and that was uh, that was good, but also very frustrating because to, to create that service that basically bridges quite a few things in the NHS proved to be very difficult. And mm. there was lots of systems that I kind of bang my head against. Um, but I couldn't stop myself. I could, you know, I had to try and keep uh, trying to sort of create a new thing and a new service. And that's been my career all the time. 
very much enjoying contact with patients, but also feeling like there could be ways in which we could be doing things better, not for just the person sitting in front of me, but for the majority of, of people. So yeah, that, that's why I do what I do is one, because I love seeing patients and be and two, because I can't help myself. Tried yeah, to well, you, you've obviously got this, this passion to help people, help people in the sort of mental health uh, space. Yeah. And so you've taken your, I guess, your your physician sort of intervention, which is obviously one way of helping, but then you've also then expanded it into uh, technology as well and other aspects of work you do, isn't it? Um, what caused you to be, I guess, broadening out or, 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 yeah. or use other ways to meet those uh, passions? It, it was, it was, it was, I suppose it was that, that, uh, you know, that particular tendency that I discovered in myself to try and create and generate services. So that led me to, to start working in the independent sector where I felt there was a little bit more of an opportunity to, to completely design a, a service from the ground up. So I thought, you know, for listeners, uh, viewers, the independent sector in the, in the UK, uh, it, there are companies that work with, with the NHS, so they only provide services to the NHS and only serve NHS patients. So they're commissioned services that, that, the, that the NHS provides. But the difference there is that you, as a, as a commissioned service, can design the service, have a, have a lot more freedom. You're committed to produce certain outcomes for the NHS, but you're not told exactly how to design the service. And I found that quite appealing. So it was, it was good because I, I could still offer care, which is free to the, to the person at the point of use. But I had a little bit more leeway in, in how to organize the service. And that's that's what I liked about it. And that's what led me down that, that particular path. And then very early on, uh, you know, because I was there, I suppose, I became the the, the medical director. And then I had, a, I had the opportunity to design the services more widely and not just the ones that I perhaps I specialized myself on, like from a from a medical point of view. So as I said, I'm, I'm dual qualified adult and, and all these psychiatrists, but we, I had the opportunity to, to design with my colleagues, with other members in, uh, of the of the multidisciplinary team. And also my co-founder now at Thrive, uh, um, Adam Huxley, who's a clinical psychologist, to design all the services. Like for example, we had learning disability services that, that we designed. Uh, we also had uh, services for children uh, with learning disabilities. So we have those residential schools we had that we, we designed. And, and we also had um, services for people with uh, brain injury and, and related conditions that, that we also designed, which is a bit wider than, than I was doing before. So we was just discovering that I had a, I had a passion of, for trying to create systems that it, it was not just about me being in front of, of, of someone, which felt it, it's, it's something that, I, as I said before, I really, really enjoy, but it feels very indulgent. <laughs> in that what happens to all the people that are not sitting in front of me is, is mm. kind of the, the thought that is always sort of, you know, finds mm. itself into my consciousness. So, and that actually led me to, to founding Thrive because it was it was good to create those residential services that, that we're describing, but Adam and I felt that we could have wider impact by empowering people to use mm. technology to detect early these, these, these conditions, to know exactly what was going on, and then to offer them uh, support as early as possible through uh, through you know, access to psychology uh, as early as possible. So, so that's that's where Thrive came about is to try and extend it and make it as seamless as possible. So that, you know, I think I think Adam and I had a discussion where if we just remain clinicians, we would be able to sort of uh, support something like maybe sixteen hundred people throughout our careers, and that's like not just us, but you know, with a team. 
uh, and you know by doing it the way we're doing it now, we probably we probably already reached something like fifty thousand plus people. Uh, you know, so so you know we've already sort of gone over what would we would have done had we remained just clinicians, and that that I think that is very motivating to me that mm-hmm. that ability to sort of have wider impact and, and to sort of make those systems and those services as seamless as possible for individuals mm-hmm. so that they. They don't get stuck between the the, the gaps. Um, that's kind of a driving mm. um, motif in, in what we're trying to sort of uh, achieve, really. So it's scaling your impact, in essence, isn't it? It's taking your uh, the person of one person, as it were, or impact as one one clinician, and scaling it and having a, yeah. a bigger a bigger impact. Which obviously you've got a massive passion to to help people and really overcome these particular sort of mental health and. One of the aspects we want to just look to today, really, is um, it's quite an interesting topic, and it's something which is, I would say, is, is rife within the workplace. Is this uh, presenteeism, uh, this sense of people turning up, but the, they're not fully well, whether that's physically or mentally, uh, and then obviously creating uh, an impact on their work. Uh, it'd be good for, for, for us to get an understanding from your perspective of your definition of that, and then just a little bit more of what impact that is having on, on the workplace right now. Yeah, in terms of, you know, yeah, absolutely. So presentism is a, is a, is a big problem and it's a, it's a problem that is perhaps um, more important in mental health than in other, I mean, it can happen in other conditions, not just mental health. So you can be, you can be like, you know, can have a very bad chest infection, yet still want to get to work or you can, you're feeling very sick and you still want to get to work, but you're not really being productive. So, so mental health in particular is a bit more prone to it than, than perhaps other conditions where you, you're not able to perhaps, um, uh, you know, pretend that the, disability, that the problem is, is, is not there or, or make as if, you know, the problem is not there, but obviously it is there. Um, but it happens in other, in, other, in other conditions as well. But basically by way of definition is, you have a condition, you, it is affecting your function, you really cannot work, really, but you're going to work anyway. So you're not really, uh, you know, logging it as being off sick uh, when, when, you probably, when you should. You know, that's, that's kind of it. So it's, it's, it's general, not just for mental health, that, that would apply across the board. If you're ill enough that it's affecting your function, you shouldn't be working, but you are turning up to work anyway. In terms of, of mental health, is is actually the the majority of the cost that we see is generated by mental health conditions, which is actually so in the UK is about fifty three billion per year in total, which is like like, like a lot. This is mental health in general. Mm. Uh, if you calculate it, there's, there's a there's a study that was published last year by Deloitte, looking at this, and it's obviously grown through the through the pandemic specifically with, with mental health. Um, uh, quite a quite a big growth. Something I, I seem to remember around six percent, which is which is big. Um, but if you look at just presenteeism, it's about it's about a bit. Um, it's about around about half of it is is presenteeism. It's about twenty four to twenty eight billion uh, in twenty twenty one. Yeah, that's um, the impact. So that's the impact on the costs of product productivity in, in the workplace. That's right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And and you. You, I mean, if you were to guess which sectors it affects the most, uh, what would be your guess? Um, is it the public sector? Is it the third sector? Or is it, or is it private? The private sector. Um, I don't know if you have any guesses for that. Which I, 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 the most? I would say it's probably the public sector. I would. Yeah, think. that's what I thought as well. But but interestingly, 
the third sector and the public sector are around 42% affected by it, whereas, uh, whereas in private it's around 51%. So it's quite a, quite a large different, okay. uh, difference. And the, and the key question in the, in the service is, um, you know, whether they, you know, when, you, when you're unwell, do you actually do you turn up to work? You know that's kind of the question, and and the, and you can divide it into I always turn to work, uh, I always go to work, I don't take time off, uh, or, or 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 go to work more, uh, I always take time off, um, or I or I often or I often go to work. So is is the, the the people that always go to work about when they're unwell about fifty one percent do that in the private sector, uh, and compared to forty two for example in public and third sector. Which is interesting. So, so in the public, in the private sector, which which you would have thought maybe is less prone to it, is the, is the place where you receive the most and, and it generates the most problems. And is you know, what, it's, what, it's, what, it's what, a do you what, problem. what do you think is the the root cause? Why do you think we 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 sort of have this illness, whether it's a physical thing or a mental thing, and we decide we're going to keep going to work even though we're not feeling great and we're going to be unproductive, not very effective. Why do we do that? What, what is, it, is it a cultural thing of a company, or is it, is it a UK culture, or is it a wider than that? What, what's driving it? Thing. I think I think there's various things that play into it. Uh, if you look at mental health specifically, there's a little bit of a stigma. There might be stigma with other with other conditions, not mental health, but I think the stigma is less. So so yes, it, com- it could be company uh, culture. That's maybe that's why you see it more in the private companies where people. Uh, Supposed to turn up to work no matter what and work long hours no matter what to get mm. things done. And perhaps the third sector and the, and the public sector is a little bit more forgiving, and that's why people do tend to take time off when they're not feeling well. Maybe um, so. There's a bit of stigma attached to it. There's there's the stigma just taking time off. Stigma, you know, for being sick, some stigma attached to it. So that sort of plays into it. If you're off because you have a mental health condition, the stigma is probably greater. Yeah, because you don't. Uh, it may be that you don't want to uh, disclose this. You know that that might be that you might be feeling a bit embarrassed, or you don't you feel it's too intrusive. You don't want to sort of declare it to to your company. You think so. A lot of people interviewed think that they might that their careers might be negatively affected. So if you disclose that you have a cold, nobody expects that their careers are going to be negatively affected by that disclosure. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you dec- disclose that you've got a you know depression or stress or that you Feel a bit burned out, or or that, or that you you're anxious. Uh, that people feel that that's going to follow them, and that that's why maybe they would be more reluctant uh, to do it. Um, and also, you know, feeling like you're not going to be listened to, even even if you don't feel that that's going to happen. You know, what what's the point? Or because there's nothing, you know, a lot of people say there's nothing visible that I can produce. You know, if I break my arm, I can just show my broken yeah. arm, and then nobody's going to argue with that. Whereas if I'm saying I feel depressed, then some people's attitudes, or they expect some people's attitudes to be, well, you know, get on with it. What, what are you What are you talking about? And maybe that's why you see that skew, where maybe in the private sector is is less is more frowned upon. Mm. You know, but I'm as, speculating but I, here. But as the mental health side of things, the stigma attached to it, has that got better in the last few years? In terms, I would of say people? so. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's obviously it's, people are more aware of it, and it's I don't know obviously in schools it's a lot more aware of it in terms of the impacts. So that's obviously helping, but there's still this little stigma, isn't there? Like or or, or lack of visibility, I guess, of something, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean it's interesting. So people are, are more openly talking about it or, or having the conversation more openly, which is great. But when you are affected by it, 
it's it's a bit of an interesting situation because the conditions these conditions make you have beliefs about yourself and about how you're perceived by others which not may not be how people actually perceive you so you you expect certain things to happen you expect people to be dismissive you expect people to because you have these negative thoughts that are dominating the way you think mm. so you're expecting the worst potential outcome when you disclose one of these things, right? So right. That, so it's not necessarily that, that people are not wanting to help you. It's not necessarily that people are not prepared to support you. Not necessarily people that are not aware of it. They, they might be, but you still, the person affected by it, may feel like they might not react. Mm. You know, Almost, almost creating narratives that don't yeah. even exist, I guess, potentially. Well, I mean, yes, it's, it's, it's part of the condition, of course, that they're not doing this, you know, nobody's doing this on purpose, that the condition makes you feel this way. And that's the condition in itself is a barrier for seeking help. So, you, you, you know, that that's what's so difficult about it sometimes, you know, is about getting that person to take that step to seek help is quite difficult uh, often. And it is, and it is, it's not a stigma coming from others. It's self-stigma, you might say. Mm. Um, but it is it's part of the condition, unfortunately. So so um, trying so to overcome that is, is the next step. It's, it's a bit mm. harder than just trying to sort of get the conversation going around. around I was going to say, how, how, do we, how do we create <clears throat> workplaces or cultures where we work that people don't – well, obviously, if there's a self-stigma, that's quite tricky to try to overcome. It is tricky, yeah, yeah. How, do, how does the workplace create an environment – that makes it it's not a stigma in the workplace to talk about it or to what what are you finding ways of strategies that our companies are that's been quite effective that's becoming more positive about it and embracing it and and almost helping melt away that sort of self-stigma as well yeah no and, and it does don't, don't get me wrong it absolutely does help and I, and I do think that we're seeing an improvement in, in help seeking in general mm-hmm. uh, in our own data but you know outside of our own data as well um and and it's interesting that depending on where you are, this affects you more or less. Uh, so people who are paid less, uh, who are who are you know perhaps have a a lower paid job and uh, and, and their working conditions are a bit more precarious, those are the people that struggle the most to seek help. Whereas we're seeing that people that are a bit more senior or paid better or, or you know people with 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 bigger salaries, they tend to come forward um, more and they tend to sort of, you know, sort of uh, say when they're being affected more than, than, than this comes from some research that we've done ourselves as well, that we see that tendency. Um, so, so I mean, how, how do you create an environment where, where this is possible? There's, there's this concept of psychological uh, safety that, that, you know, so it's, 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 a, it's a way to sort of signal to, to the environment that, it is okay to talk about these things. That these things happen. That that you know it could happen to any of us, and that you're going to be it's going to be well received, and, and you're going to you know mm. that that the expected response is going to be one of support. Yeah, mm. um, and and how do you do that? So uh, you know there's various ways of doing it. So one one of the ways is to is to you know for the leadership to openly talk about this, um, and to create programs that expect it. You know, so here is a program that we've got. Uh, you know that that supports people with therapy. Here's a program that that supports people's mental health. So so you know if people are talking about that and, and, and debating that publicly, it signals to everybody that it is okay to talk about it because mm. the leadership is talking about it. The leadership talking about their own 
mental health problems mm. openly actually improves that psychological safety quite a lot. You know, if if my manager is talking about this openly, I have less to worry myself, right? So, yeah. so, so, and, and, and it's difficult for managers because obviously it's about, you know, feeling quite vulnerable in, in front of your employees, the people that report to you. But actually it's one of the things that works the best, just being candid about your own struggles, yeah. uh, you know, your own difficulties that you've had or challenges or, you know, whatever you overcame. Uh, just talking about those things makes that mm. psychological safety greater, um, and and just you know um, um, you know having 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 it as a value you know that uh, from the company. I mean, it, it's quite hard work to sort of create it so that everybody buys into it, but but you know getting the getting it across the board that you know we're going to support one another when we're struggling and, and that it is okay to mention these things and the, re- the expected response mm-hmm. is going to be one of support. And training comes into it, you know, training not just for the managers. So sometimes people are training the managers to have these conversations to to get people to open up. And that's very useful and very good and for them to have the awareness. Also, I think it's important to empower managers to know what to do. So you you talk, you you know how to have the conversation. Mm. But can you now, do you know what resources you're going to put in front of this person? That's sometimes a worry for or a manager. Mm. What am I? If I if I open this kind of worms, is, is, is one of the terms that I've heard. Mm. How am I going to deal with it? You know, it's, it's empowering them to know what to do in that in that circumstance. Mm. Um, but also training the the staff to know what are the signs, what are the symptoms. Because sometimes people don't seek help because they dis, they dismiss it. They say, "Oh, I should mm. be. I have no reason to feel this way. I should be getting on with it." You know, it's just mm. understanding that these are. These are conditions that, that will yeah. affect you. They're not necessarily going to get better on their own, that you do need some support and, and help. And it's just about talking, you know, doing that training for the staff as well. So training managers, training the staff, and also offering uh, good support for the managers to have those discussions mm. and also for the staff to reach out without necessarily even involving the manager if they feel that that's difficult mm. um, for whatever reason. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, you talk about role modeling there and, yes. you know, making psychological safe environments is yeah. is so impacted by role modeling, role modeling from the leadership of mm. them sharing their vulnerabilities or why yeah. I suffer from anxiety or whatever it may be. And actually, that is so more powerful than, than anything else. Actually, I think people really realize how powerful that is. Yeah. And just going back to uh, presenteeism itself. Um, has, I, I would assume this is a massive assumption within the context of remote and hybrid that has probably gone up. So people are at home working from home as they are in their jobs are probably battling away because they think, oh, well, I'm at home anyway, sort of thing. I, I presume that's probably shot up, hasn't it? It has increased. You know, that, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the truth of it, you know, over the over the pandemic we see i mean i think is is made out of two factors one i think people were struggling more for various reasons um some industries in particular struggled a lot during the during the pandemic so they're going to be more badly affected um and yes it, it you know the, the fact that you can it, it's easier you know for the reasons that we were talking about if you don't feel psychologically safe if you don't if you if the, if the problem is affecting you if it is if it is a bit of a difficult thing to take that first step and say i'm not feeling very well um perhaps if you're remote you know is you you feel it might be you might get away with it or you might feel like you're actually able to be a little bit more productive than than you would be so it's not I don't think one of the things that that I would worry about is that people characterize this as doing it out of malice. No, I think I think people are genuinely trying to work 
mm. you know, genuinely, but 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 they're unable to, if that makes sense. So so it's yeah. not it's not like they're trying to deceive anyone. Seriously, mm. it's, it's not that. It's like I should be able to do this. I if I had to get in my car, I probably wouldn't. So I would probably go off sick. But I don't have to get in my car, so I mm. could get to my computer. So I could do some work. That's that's the way it tends to happen. And yes, because of that, then maybe you see it more. Because then mm. if you saw, oh, I, I really cannot face going into the office because I feel rotten and I, you know, people will see it and that's not great. But if I am at home, I may be able to be productive and not necessarily need to sort of bother anybody. Mm. Because that's that's what they would be thinking. They'll be thinking, this is going to bother my boss who's got enough in their plate. I don't want to add to their problems. And I want to sort of be as productive as I can. Maybe I can be productive. Mm. So, so yes, is a short answer, but I think it's got some nuances that, that are important mm. to understand. So, to have, obviously, with somebody who's got like a an ailment or an obvious physical health condition, it's um, easy, obviously, to spot. And obviously, with the mental ones, it's slightly more difficult. Mm. But if if we're aware of somebody's got a a health problem. Um, and you're a leader, or you're, you're, the, you're, the, you're the team leader, the boss. Um, how do we go about calling that out and, and encouraging them to stay at home in a, in a way that keeps them valued and, and and keeps it positive? You know, I mean, obviously, it's important to do that, isn't it? It is important. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because you don't want to. So you you want them to to you know they probably do need to be off. Uh, and you want them to rest properly because they, what they're trying to do is they they are trying to keep functioning and they're maybe not sleeping very well and then they're worrying about how they're going to perform the next day. So therefore they're sleeping worse or their concentration is worse. So mm. so it's a bit of a vicious cycle. So you know probably the thing that to do is you know, go to your GP, you know get your sick note and find the treatment and you know get better or find you know through an organization such as such as Thrive find you. A therapist and start working towards recovery, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, so, so yeah, so, I mean, for, for us, when, when we do training with organizations, a lot of it is about uh, training the managers to have those conversations and to be able to spot those things, you know, so empowering them to do that. Um, I think one of the things that, that could be very difficult for managers is this, sometimes the training involves like talking through diagnosis and things like that, which is can be very complicated and is, I mean, I'm going to say it controversially, is not that useful. Um, it's more about, you know, helping managers detect when there's when there's some symptoms, basically, that you can you may be able to spot, uh, whether those symptoms are causing distress or dysfunction to this person. You probably are able to spot that. Um, and and if, you, if you've done that, you know, you, you have to evaluate whether it's affecting the, you know, it's, it's affecting the risk in any way. You know, is it, mm. are they, are they, do, do they have a problem that you do need to sort of act on and, and at what speed? And then once, once you teach them to sort of do that, then it's empowering them to take the correct action. Is it, it could be about, it's not necessarily about saying, oh, you're not working anymore. That might not be the, re- the most helpful response, but it might be about introducing reasonable adjustments to the role. So the person is able to still feel valued and empowered and, and doing something productive, which they're going to feel good about, uh, but also not under pressure. Uh, so it's a trying to reduce that level of, of pressure whilst maintaining their self-worth. And, and, you know, they do want to be productive. They do want to do what they normally do. But can we adjust things in a reasonable way 
to do that. And we do some training with, with managers to sort of try and find that right balance and what is a reasonable adjustment mm. given this situation. You know, spot it, talk about it, and then find those reasonable adjustments. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's having that having a, an open dialogue, isn't it, with the, yeah. uh, the, the leader and the employee in terms of what's the best way of supporting them. And it's coming from the angle of, we're here to support you and help yes. you and, and however that might be in terms of reducing workload or doing different tasks that may help you uh, in, that, in that context until you get better and well, whether that's physically or mentally. Um, mm. Do you think there's been, because obviously in some contexts there's a cost to the employee when they're off sick because of sick pay reducing in certain costs and obviously we're having a, mm-hmm. a cost of living crisis right now. Mm. Um do you think that's going to fuel it even more? People think I'm just going to keep going in because I'll, I'll end up losing money because of my contracts because I don't get full pay or whatever it is on so sick pay. Yeah, I think I think that is yeah so that's an important thing and it's also it's, I think it's a contributing factor to that psychological safety. Mm. So if you if you if you don't feel like your company is going to support you while this is going on, then you might choose to sort of not disclose it. Uh, because you might be having those worries. And remember that the conditions themselves make you think the worst about situations. So it's not just, uh, you know, so it's, it's not just, okay, it's going to, my, my pay is going to be reduced. No, in their minds, sometimes it's, it's like they're going to lose their home because they're not going to be able to keep up with payments and, and they're living in that reality. So which prompts them to be even less likely to seek to seek help, you know, I think I think that's a very valid point. What can organisations do? You know, I think I think maybe about reviewing your your sick pay and how you're going to do that to enable that psychological safety and to enable people to come forward when they're not they're not feeling their best. Um, yeah. But that that you know, undoubtedly, that is an important factor. You know, your financial concerns. Am I going yeah. to be? Am I going to be? Yeah, am I going to be <laughs> um, having problems paying my bills? You know. It's mm. definitely going to be a concern, and it's going to add to that stress, and it's going to mm. add to it's going to probably worsen the whole the whole thing. And it, and it goes back to that it's it, it treating people uh, as humans, it's treating people and valuing people, and looking at the holistic aspects. You know, people don't just there; you pay them the contract to do a job. Actually, you've got to think about the impact on a if they're unwell, uh, on the salary, and also. The impact on your business if they're not performing well because they're, they're not very well and actually they're best being at home and actually supporting them until they get better quicker yep. and recover quicker, quicker uh, is really important and it, it all goes back to you know having a uh, an environment where yes it's psychologically safe where people can feel comfortable to share these things and to challenge things uh, but also they're valued as well isn't it i mean that's that's the crux of all this is making sure that have a culture that Actually, I feel part of it. I'm part of a community. It's not just about I'm paid to do a job and that's all it is, is it? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's, and actually that reduces your chances of becoming unwell in the first place. You know, that, that mm. sense of community, that, that, that culture. And again, it, it increases that psychological safety if you feel that, you know, we're all in this together. Um, and then I'm going to get a positive response, you know, if, if I'm struggling. So, so that's all, that's all part of that. I mean, um, other tools that that employers use, I mean, and, and again, you know, our own services. You know, we introduce this this app that we put in the hands of everybody that does screening tests. That obviously the screening is only for you, but it does encourage that help seeking, and we do see an improvement in help seeking 
through that just mm. just by highlighting that that yeah you do have a real a, a real symptoms and a real condition and it is you're perfectly entitled to get some help that also helps so so employers that deploy these kind of tools that are anonymous uh, they don't need mm. to sort of you know because if they don't want to disclose it they don't want to disclose it it's, it's up to them it's personal um but if you put this this uh, you know anonymous tool in the hand that you might also improve the chances of seeking help um, mm. through a vehicle such as our such as our service you know they're doing anonymously they're doing it in an app and that can put them in touch with a with a therapist they're seeking help already they're on their way to recovery and the therapist is going to guide them through you know what it is that is reasonable to do or not mm. and even write a letter on their behalf if they don't feel like disclosing them and we've done this for, for people so so you know helping them work with their managers empowering them to do that mm. when they don't feel confident so putting those those kind of tools in people's hands, also could be can be of value so that they can they don't feel that the only way is to disclose you know no. they can do it privately and then they can seek some support from somebody else that helps them disclose mm. uh, when it's necessary that's really important it's empowering the individual isn't it making sure they feel empowered to make some choices as i say whether to disclose or get advice more anonymously uh, that's yeah, really exactly. valuable um, this has been a really good conversation uh andre and uh, i've really appreciated that and thank you for your time today uh, if people want to connect with you and know a bit more about uh, your company, what's the best way of doing that? Yes, to reach out uh, to us through our website, which is uh, thrive, just like the word thrive, .uk.com. So thrive.uk.com. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Well, um, I will put that a link in the, in the show notes as well. And, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you do like this episode, then please do rate, review, and share with your friends and colleagues. As a coaching practice, we coach high-performing leaders and teams with extreme ambitions. We'll help you to go beyond what you believe is possible. If this sounds like you, then let's have a conversation with me. Contact me at julianrobertsconsulting.com. <laughs>